Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this very strange and very potent time. My name is Brett. I'm going to be your host on this journey. And joining us on the show today is Walt Fritz. Walt is a physical therapist from New York who's been in practice since 1985. He's moved on to manual therapy, primarily in the form of myofascial release technique, and has moved on from that methodology to really cultivate his own practice, which hinges on shared decision-making. And this is a very novel concept in the world of therapy that empowers the clients to actually be active contributors to their own healing process. So this conversation is really all about the healing properties of working with a therapist and developing a therapeutic relationship. What does that even mean? It's also about the stories we tell about our pain and how the stories themselves can either enable or disable us from making progress on our healing journeys. So whether you're somebody who is in manual therapy, whether you're a practitioner, or just somebody who's interested in the human body, this episode has something for you. If you want to stay plugged into Walt's platform, head on over to waltfritz.com. He has a lot of online trainings and other conversations with other podcasters that uh, go deep into the science of pain and reorganizing our thoughts about it and how that could actually help us. If you want to support this show, consider following us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. Any support helps me keep the lights on. Uh, and that's going to be it for the bookkeeping. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Please kick back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and welcome Walt Fritz. All right. Well, we are now live. Uh, I want to start by just saying uh, thank you formally for giving me some of your time. I'm sure with your busy practice, uh, you know, I just really uh, appreciate you uh, meeting me here. Yeah, Brett, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So just to give you some context and my listeners of how I came across your work, uh, I'm a massage therapist. Uh, I got licensed in 2020, so I'm still fairly fresh. And this past year, I stumbled across uh, some literature and some voices uh, in the field that have kind of radically shifted the way I perceive manual therapy. Uh, And this past year, I've just recognized this slow disentangling of a lot of my kind of old methodologies and narratives that I've been holding and really found myself kind of brought into a new kind of feels more expanded perspective on manual therapy. Uh, and what I'm referring to is just kind of the modern conversation on pain science. So I kind of found myself at the start of this year with a growing sense that everything that I knew was wrong, which I actually think is a beautiful place to be. Um, and I found your work, uh, and it seems that you kind of went through maybe a similar arc, maybe in some different textures and tones. So I'd love to explore your evolution of methodology and how your story on what we're doing as manual therapists has changed. So to start that off, I would love to just go back to the beginning, uh, cause you're a physical therapist and you found your way to manual therapy through my, um, myofascial release technique. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious about what caused you to make that transition into the world of touch therapy? 
Uh, well, you know, in physical therapy, at least traditionally, when you know, I graduated in the mid '80s, and manual therapy was really pretty richly embedded in the PT profession, and to some extent, it still is. Manual therapy, um, you know, it's almost we have to define our terms. What is manual therapy? Because is it massage? Is it myofascial release? Is it joint manipulation? And the answer would be yes, right? Um, to me, manual therapy is a lovely umbrella term for probably just about everything that you and I can think of we can do with our hands, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of other modalities that include touch might view themselves differently, but manual therapy to me is any kind of touch-based intervention. Um, so, you know, we learn joint manipulation, we learn massage, we learned a few other kind of manual ter therapy techniques and, and styles in physical therapy school. Um, and that was back before evidence-based practice was the norm. And pretty much it was based on a lot of historical traditions in physical therapy. Sure, we had evidence and research and all that stuff, but um, it was kind of like anything was allowable. And then somewhere in the 90s, the evidence-based model really became the norm for a lot of healthcare, physical therapy included. And it started to weed out some of the interventions that were seen as being less valuable, less valid, less um, relevant, um, and maybe things that physical therapists shouldn't be doing. And somewhere along the way in the early 2000s, manual therapy started to get demonized in the physical therapy profession and devalued, whereas exercise and education became elevated in their value to the point where now new grads are DPTs, first of all, um, and there's a very minimalizing quality that manual therapy is, is giving given um, in the in the training and the research, everything, that somehow it's low value and it's totally um, um, dependency building. And I think we could we could unpack that a bit too, because that can be looked at in a lot of different ways. But to answer your question, when did I get into it? How do I did I get into it? I literally got into it in the very early 90s by somebody twisting my arm. I, I was working in early intervention at the time, uh, working with the birth to five population, physical therapy with uh, disabled kids, et cetera. And we hired a therapist who had done some craniosacral and myofascial release training back in the 80s. And he was pretty, he was a pretty interesting guy. He was pretty um, subtle in the way he worked. Um, I kind of liked his way of engaging the kids. Um, certainly we were working on developmental progression, trying to get them to do things they couldn't do. But there was a there was a mannerism that he worked with, the methods that he worked with that I really, I really kind of admired. And you know, he he literally kind of twisted my arm and said, Why don't you take some of this training by um in malfascia release? And at the time MFR was really being demonized in my professional literature as being um, pseudoscience and a lot of stuff like that that are still arguments that are made today about the kind of work that I learned. But you know what? My employer paid for it, so I went for a lot, one of those long weekend seminars, and, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it to the point where I started, like, you know, in a very short period of time, taking a lot of the myofascial release training, craniosacral training, and some other trainings. Um, and it really kind of just sent me down this rabbit hole that I, I was really appreciating. Um, I transitioned pretty quickly after starting that training into home care, which gave me a long eight years to really test out this work with home care patients, um, a lot of them dealing with chronic pain situations or acute pain situations. And I was able to sort of like, you know, um, test my limits in terms of what this work was good for. And I saw the value of it. And somewhere in the mid 90s, I started a in-home private practice on a part-time basis. And then finally in 2000, I transitioned to sort of a full-time, this is what I do for a living, myofascial release-based 
um, model. Um, that went on for a while, went really well. And in 2006, I parted ways with the community of Mafash Release that I was in for a lot of reasons, which have been um, sort of put up there in, in, uh, in you know, uh, carved in stone on some internet uh, chat boards over the years for um, how that happened. But um, basically started trying to broaden my perspective beyond the, the very narrow views of Mafash Release. And I think that's probably how I ended up here on your show, Brett, in terms of some of those um, transitions, some of those disagreements and some of those um, you know, kind of evolutions of a person and a human being on how we grow. Yeah. So what were some of the original narratives and views that you uh, maybe recognized were a little bit narrow? Like how, what was your modus operandi as you were developing your practice for those eight years? So, well, I'm going to be totally honest. It took me a long time to really begin thinking critically and seeing what really did have you know problems with the world outside of Malfash release because inside the world of Malfash release you know kind of in that echo chamber and, and i'm guessing most of the manual therapies you learn in school and since then th these echo chambers that we train in and most of them are continuing ed type settings the, you know they're, they're pretty it's it's heady work it's almost um you know it's almost too empowering that we think we gain the ability to diagnose, if you're allowed to use that word, or at least evaluate issues and find problems that other people in healthcare are unable to find because they've not trained in the way that we've trained. And I think that that sort of narrative is, is an all too common one in our shared professions where you know, we're taught that, you know, it's almost like we learn the secret science of fascia or cranial sacral rhythm or, you know, trigger points or fill in the blank with hundreds of dysfunctions that are out there for us to just you know, bite the hook on and get just drawn in with that, that fishing line. And I can, it took me a real long time to really outwardly question. I, I questioned a lot of them inwardly, but I kept my mouth shut because honestly, um, it wasn't allowable in the myofascial release world to openly question, to openly doubt. Um, and so I kept my mouth shut. I, I went along with it. There was a lot of benefits for me, and I'm going to be perfectly blunt financial and, and visibility in terms of a lot of things with that model that I worked with and kind of worked my way up in the food chain of instructors. And uh, you know, there was I, I, I got a lot of, out of it from an ego perspective, so it took a lot for me to break from it. Um, but once I broke, the broke was clean and the broke was break was complete to say, okay, MFR worked if MFR was defined as what we do with our hands. But does MFR work as when we try and really unpack the mechanism of action behind MFR or behind, behind craniosacral or behind trigger point work or behind just about anything you and I can do? Is the mechanism of action really clearly defined in a way that somebody outside of our tribe would say, yeah, that makes good scientific sense of what, what you're saying. And, you know, that's kind of what led me on this last 15 years of my journey so far is really trying to take a look at the overview of a lot of different interventions, both from that, you know, the manual therapy type, but also behavioral interventions and, you know, the influence of a lot of different factors that are at play when we walk into a room with somebody seeking our input and seeking our help. Um, and it's, it's so much more than a tissue-based problem. We're dealing with a human problem. And unfortunately, I think most modalities teach you that the problem's in the tissue. And when you do things, you're singularly affecting that tissue without the human being actually having 
valuable input to that scenario. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you kind of mentioned this power that we get as experts of a field mm-hmm. um, and like the level of confidence that it comes with. You know, I work with a lot of different therapists and trades and like, oh, yeah, you definitely have this problem right here. Um, and, you know, I know from my training, it was only nine months long. And I remember when I first got out of it, I felt like I had a degree of competency. But the more that I get to know, the more I realize, like, I have no idea. I'm even hearing that the art of palpation is very uh, uncertain as well. And is it possible that these this confidence could actually cause harm in the idea of, like, nocebo as yeah. well? Like, convincing someone there's some strong structural issue that they then take with them moving yeah. forward. You know, there's been a lot written and, you know, my friend Brian Fulton wrote a, wrote a whole book on the, the placebo effect of manual therapy that, you know, unpacks the placebo and nocebo effect. And that would be a good reference for, you know, your, your viewers here to, to check out um, harm. You got, I guess you define it, got to define harm. Um, I think there's a lot of nocebo used in our shared professions and other ones around us, you know, in terms of chiropractic and osteopathy and some other things like that, with how we sort of self-define a problem based on our level of training. When somebody walks in my room or walked in my room in the past, you know, every problem tended to get defined based on fascial terms. Um, and, you know, it made sense to me because I was trained in MFR that everything became a fascial problem. And then I then sort of taught, educated my patient that their problem was a fascial issue, a fascial restriction that nobody else had been able to find before. And they were frustrated because nobody else talked about their fascia. And that sort of gave me an elevation in the estimation of their mind of my worth. It's like, wow, this guy knows stuff that nobody else knew. And it's like, well, did I really know stuff that was accurate? Did, Did I simply know recipes and stories to tell them? Is there true harm from that bread? I'm, I'm not 100% whether it's true, sure whether it's true harm. I think harm comes if we instill a belief in them that we're the only ones that can help them because of our special skill. I think that's definitely um, potentially harmful and certainly it's it should be unethical. It should be seen as, as you know, really poor boundaries to, to make those claims, but yet I mean, let's face it, that's what we're taught in our education, continuing education, is to treat everybody based on the lens that we view things from. And everything was a fashion lens for me. Yeah. So is it possible that that could actually be a beneficial process? Even if your view Mm -hmm. isn't accurate, you're assigning their condition as some certain thing, and then you actually do end up working with it in a way and give them a story to be like, yeah, I had this adhesion and he loosened it up and now I feel better. Yeah. I mean, we do it all the time, right? Yeah. 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 Is it a benefit? Absolutely. So you've got a paradox. It's both the benefit is was potentially a harmful aspect or at least a nocebo aspect of it. I, I, you know, I, I spewed the MFR narrative for a decade and a half and I help people. So what's the harm in that, right? Someone might question invalidly, well, what's the harm in that? I thought I was being honest in telling them about this and they appreciated the help I gave. But to say something works is so deep and wide. How Define work, right? Define health. Is there, is there harm in it? Um, possibly not. Am I lying to them? I don't know. You know, you could go on an ethical binge here and say it's not lying if you don't know it is a lie. Um, but... Once we get stuck, stuck, maybe stuck's the wrong word. Once we get really enmeshed in a model, we, we get so married to it that it's hard to see anything else as being true. And when somebody starts to question 
our beliefs, man, we just come up fighting, right? What do you mean it's not about the fashion? Look at the outcomes I had. The outcomes I had were, you know, in that, that sort of connecting it to a fascial problem was a classic post classic post hoc fallacy, right? Where we think we're, we're dealing with the problem we are and we explain the benefits based on that, but the two may not be linked at all. It's, it's very messy stuff. And, you know, if, if you spend any kind of time on social media, on, on massage, manual therapy, PT groups, I mean, this is the fodder for fights on an everyday basis, you know? Everybody claiming essentially superiority of their intervention because they get such excellent outcomes. Um, and it, finally, we just kind of tune it all out. Yeah. So what do you think it is? Like, how can we all have such different methodologies and views of what we're doing, but still get such good outcomes? What is, do you have any idea of like what the connective tissue of those outcomes are? No pun intended. Yeah. yeah. Um, I personally think one of the connections is the, the common denominator of the relationship that we build with another human being. The relationship of trust and hope when somebody comes in to see us, that relationship, I think, is it plays a significant role in all of our outcomes. And I don't care whether you're using, you know, um, relaxation massage or MFR or CST or, or beating the crap out of somebody with aggressive soft tissue manipulation. There's, there's a relationship that's built that I think plays a major role. There was a discussion that was had sometime last fall on a social media group I belong to where people were sort of bantering a bit about, well, okay, you know, if you, Brett, could, if I asked you for a paper that best explained your model, your beliefs, your outcomes, you know, your intervention, your modality, what would it be? And people were kind of, you know, sort of handing over these different papers. And of course, everybody else was sort of dismissing them or, or, you know, unpacking them, etc. And it kind of came time, you know, I want to work in a way around a circle. And I said, okay, I'm going to give you a paper that's older than me. I'm going to give you a paper, a research paper that's, that's 65 years old. And it wasn't even written by somebody in the, in the manual therapy profession. It was written by a psychotherapist. And it's a 65-year-old paper by Carl Rogers, the psychotherapist, talking about um, at the time, much as in our professions now, where People tend to attribute outcomes to their, their modality, to the methodology of their modality, as that's the reason why they help people. And in mental health therapy at the time, back in the late 50s, you know, it was a common thing that was passed around that it was however you're treating people, treat, treat, or, um, treating those patients, that's why they're getting better. And what Carl Rogers put forth in this paper was... It's not the modality. It's not what you do. It's the fact that you're doing it and you're building a relationship with another human being with certain basic pillars of, of the necessary factors for, you know, a, a therapeutic relationship. And to me, I looked at that paper and I thought, you know, that is such important work, whether it's for psychotherapeutic interventions or, you know, the kind of physical interventions that we have. And there's been a lot of updates to that concept, a Carl Rogers paper, including in our sorts of research literature that... The relationship that we build with another person in that that um, you know therapeutic relationship probably plays equal, if not a greater role, than anything else that you and I do. And that's a tough one for people because if you're not you know finding and palpating, as you said, a trigger point, or palpating a fascial restriction, or palpating a muscle knot, or isn't it interesting that we all palpate these things that nobody else can prove outside that mark, you know that in, in niche of the rabbit hole. What is it we're building when we palpate those things, when we treat those things, when we say to the patient, do you feel better now? And I think it really is a lot about that relationship, the therapeutic relationship.
that's a pretty amazing uh, way to summarize that. So I'm sure some people out there who might be dealing with chronic pain who have a really thick story of, well, you know, I had this mm -hmm. thing happen and now I just have this ache right here. You know, they're hearing uh, the benefits of having a strong therapeutic relationship, but it still doesn't like fit into their experience of their pain because so much of it is based on this idea that the tissue is injured. Mm -hmm. So how exactly does that function, I guess, either on like a neurological level or in a muscle tissue, how does having a strong therapeutic relationship actually enact change? Uh, oh, it's an excellent question. I, um, so I'm, I, want, I want to get back to that tissue-based concept of things just in a little bit. So let's make a note about that. But the way I incorporate um, the therapeutic relationship is via shared decision-making in my work. Um, shared decision-making model, the model contrasts markedly with the expert, clinician as expert model that most healthcare is performed from. And most of us were trained from, right? I mean, we go to school, whatever school that is, to learn more. We take continuing education to further our training. We get experience, which make, gives us more experience. Um, and essentially, we're sort of working our way up that ladder to becoming an expert. And you know, I, I could sort of verse myself as a myofascial release expert for many years where you know, in the beginning, I didn't know much about it. But after a long time, I began to learn more about it. And people looked at me as that expert. And, you know, they, they come into us seeking an expert for our help because nobody else has been able to help them. Um, but, you know, it, it took a long time for me to come to this realization that no matter how much I know, I don't know what you're feeling until I include you in the conversation. I don't know what you're fearing and hoping for. I don't know what kind of pressures you like, what you think is useful, what you think is harmful, what you fear from me and with me until I elevate your worth in the relationship. So we're basically taking a somewhat equal role. And shared decision-making is slowly making inroads in the manual therapy world. And it's made a lot more of a, of a you know, uh, being more accepted in the general medical community. Shared decision-making is empowering a patient that they have a stake in their own care. Um, shared decision-making is so much more than asking them, well, how's the pressure, right? It's so much more than that. It's me, if I'm going to use my myofascial release background, and I don't call it MFR anymore, just because I, I kind of evolved from that, and I just call it manual therapy. Um, if I'm going to do something with someone for neck pain, right? We're so used to doing things that we say, okay, I palpated your problem. I put it in my little computer and said, I, I know what the problem is, or I think I know what the problem is. And based on a lot of experience and training, I think I know what to do with it. Instead of that, what I might do is I can't sponge all that stuff from my brain of what I think I'm palpating and what I've done for years with that problem. But what I do is, is there's a, a demarcation point from where I used to act by saying, Brett, here's what we should do. We should do this in this direction. What I'll do is I'll take my hand and I'll do what I might have done for years. And then I'll say, okay, Brett, what do you feel right now? And when I ask a question like that, it's intended to get into your lived experience, past and present. And when I do this right now, for instance, does it feel like I'm connecting with that neck pain? If so, does it feel like the pressure, the direction of stretch, the style of intervention that I'm using does it feel like we, we are doing something that could be beneficial for you? Now, if even, you know, you said you just um, got out of school three years ago, even in that short period of time, you know that there's people who immediately like what you do 
or there's people who immediately have no clue if what you're doing will be helpful at all. And so it's it's not easy. Shared decision making requires a lot of it's a lot of work on our part to, to elevate a person's our patients, another human sense of self-worth to let them know that they can contribute and they actually have value in the relationship. And that's how I view therapeutic relationship as being an important aspect of what you and I do. And it really does, it, it forces me to step down, to let my ego become a bit more in check and elevate the patient's worth so we're about an equal level. And it's, it's so unusual in the manual therapy and massage professions because you know people will say well i don't know what to do that's why i came to you and it's a lot of work but i think it's really worthwhile work yeah you know my immediate sense of that is that it really helps kind of create a bridge into the rest of their life so they have mm -hmm. a sense of ownership on how they respond to their experience and they can actually build their own language around what they're experiencing and actually navigate that in a way it feels like you said, like a lot more empowering than the traditional model where we kind of keep them behind closed doors of what we're doing. And we do something and then just assume it'll work or not work. And they just don't really have any way to orient. It feels a lot more uh, engaging. Um, yeah. And like it leads a little bit more to like lifestyle medicine too. Like I feel like it would open the door to really equip them with the responsibility um, to own yeah. their embodiment. It also take it. In, you're exactly right. It also inquire, requires me to take more responsibility for my actions in the environment. So let me just sort of veer off into the physical therapy profession for just a moment. You know, most physical therapy this, these days are more exercise based, and you know, one of the richest part of the physical therapy narrative is the homework, right? Um, because I'm only seeing you an hour once a week, so therefore you have to you have to do a lot of work that in that intermediary time and in a lot of ways that comes into manual therapy narratives as well where we only see them one hour a week you need you need to be doing your homework you need to be doing self-care self-stretching exercise all these things and you know most patients have that sense of expectation that okay you know what are you going to give me so i can do this work on my own but i think that i see too often clinicians taking um deflecting they deflect a way that if a patient doesn't improve they'll often lean on, well, they were non-compliant with their homework, right? They didn't do the exercises, they didn't do their stretches, they didn't do their, their whatever self-care we assign to them, or they didn't do enough of it. And while all of those things can be beneficial, I'm not going to take away from anything like that. And a lot of times that homework is good for changing patterns, changing memories, all those things. The one thing I try and do is within the context of the setting, the therapeutic setting itself, I'm looking to elicit change, the two of us. Can we begin to formulate the beginnings of change so that you can see yourself as, as capable of change? That empowerment during a session to say, you know what, I feel different right now. And to me, that's the most pivotal thing right there. What creates lasting change? It's a question people are always asking all the time. And if you go down the silos or the rabbit holes, everybody's got a different story. Lasting change isn't accomplished until we balance their pelvis, until we get their feet level, until we put C1 back in place, until we break up that trigger point. Hundreds of things, right? Um, change, it doesn't last until tissue changes the way I think it should change. I also think change may not last until a person can begin to have a better picture of themselves as, as changeable. And one of the ways I see that is when they get up off my table or from my chair, however we're working, 
if they begin to feel, you know, sort of an embodied change within themselves, I think that's a huge starting place for change. Instead of making it predicated on, you have to do this 15 times a day, Brett, or else change isn't gonna happen. And my homework is often, Brett, you feel different right now, right? Can you picture yourself moving out of here and being different, right? And people will say to me, well, you want me to think positive thoughts? That's my homework. And in a way, you know, without minimizing that, that's a big part of it because anybody in chronic pain, I think they really struggle to see themselves as changing, especially, you know, been, being opening so many doors for so many years from all these different people, all these different promises and a lot of money, right? And it's not helped. They, they really struggle to see themselves as feeling and being different. And I think that's some of the hardest stuff to get through to them. It's not about the repetition as much as it is to changing these patterns up here. Yeah, it really seems like it's the the soil that we grow a different kind of embodiment through. You know, if you really can't see the situation as changing, then you're not going to emotionally allow yourself to actually experience something different. And that's something that I try and communicate with my clients as well, is that this is a very um, foundational, holistic process uh, that requires a little bit of effort on their part as well yeah. to really embrace that. Uh, that it's even possible. And that seems to be like one of the most hardest things. Um, yeah, so that's that's really fascinating. So is that to say that the mind is the uh, arbiter of uh, being able to move past pain? Uh, is there a structural element that we still have to uh, address beyond just kind of our mutual opinion about how something is? Oh, so that's a whole topic for a whole nother like World War Three here. You know, is there a structural <laughs> element to pain? The pain science community is telling us, no, that it's not about the tissues. It's about how our our brain, our nervous system, our being has learned to adapt to become sensitized to certain triggers, et cetera. And I'm not a, a pain science expert by any means, but um, we are moving away from the thought that there's something wrong with the tissue as an isolated entity, that it just takes an expert who can basically open that door and access that tissue in the correct and proper way. Um, there's been some, just some fabulous papers published in the last 10 years that take us away or not away from, but evolve from the, it's all about the issue and the tissue perspective into, it's all about the human being and how they responded and reacted to a past trauma, past event, a past injury, right? Not to say the tissues aren't involved, but the way I like to read some of these newer papers are they're talking about the peripheral tissues, not as the receiver of our input when it comes to manual therapy and massage, but more of a signaler to higher centers, right? That sure, we feel something here, they feel something here, but when we poke here where the problem is, right? Or at least they feel the problem, right? Are we truly making local changes right here when we go in there, we do soft tissue manipulation? Um, possibly, and it's certainly a plausible part of the process, but there's a lot of central nervous system, autonomic nervous system, interoceptive type of, of centers um, and actions at play too. As soon as we touch, as soon as we bring meaning to a person's lived experience, if you're having an issue with pain in your neck and I come up and I'll say, you mean right here? I immediately, yes, I hit those spots of your pain, 
but I also hit spots of your recognition, of your validation, of your sense that somebody is actually listening to my story and having caring, caring interest in my story, right? And how do you how do you unpack those? How do you figure out when we do this thing that we do to the tissues? How much of the effect, percentage-wise, is the fact that we did it, and how much of the effect is that? We gave value to a person's past and present experience. And, and I think they're so deeply enmeshed that you can never separate them out. So let's not even try. Let's acknowledge that it's a multifactorial process of both, of both problem as well as change. When we touch somebody with therapeutic intent, it's almost endless the number of reasons why a person has changed, why a person has helped. But yet, you know, with our blinders on from the silo that which we're taught, we tend to single it out and say, oh, no, no, it's your fashions all bound down or fill in the blank for whatever story that you like. Yeah. It almost strikes me, this is something I've thought about, and it might not be the most articulated, well thought out idea, but it seems to me that touch is more of a metaphor than it is uh, anything else and that it does communicate so much to somebody's experience. It points to something else more than it does the fact that there's a tissue that is hurting. Does that seem to track? Yeah. Oh, the, the contextual value of, of being heard, of being touched is so strong. And then when you start going down some other of these interesting roads of, of um, interoception, right? The, 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 the quality of soft interoception was first seen. Interoception is a, a human being's ability to self-regulate, our ability to control our, control our own environment. And they saw that there was input from interoceptive centers via CTAC delay ferrets, a certain type of, of, of um, peripheral type of nerve that was responded well to stroking, to contextually appropriate gentle stroking, much like mother-child bonding. Right? And they saw that that was really nourishing to interoceptive centers for self-regulation. Now, I'm, I'm way grossly simplifying a very complex process, but they've also sort of expanded that understanding of what it takes to stimulate a CTAC delay ferret into other forms of touch like our own, the type of touch we use, especially the gentler forms of, of manual therapy and massage that are deeply, richly triggering those CTAC delay ferrets, which sure, that work might be working out a local problem, but we're also giving immediacy to the person's own ability to basically have control over their own environment. And again, how do you separate it out? How much of it is the fact that we massaged this area or did MFR in an area to do what we thought we were doing to the fascia of the muscle? And how much of it was the human or our patient basically having input into that process. And I, I don't think you can separate them out. They're so layered in a mesh in a wonderful way that it's just understanding that it's so much more than that peripheral work that we've been trained in. Yeah. So this idea of interoception as a means to self-regulate, uh, does that mean that like as we move through life, we are maybe having experiences that disrupt that? Is it possible to disrupt our ability to self-regulate in different ways? Because it seems so automatic and yeah. out of our control. Yeah. Um, so I am going to be completely transparent and say I don't know the answer to that. Um, I really don't. I'm, I'm sort of like peeking in on the periphery of interoception, CTAC delay, for instance, and seeing how other people are applying it. I really don't know the answer to that one. 
just I, I do want to bring a really brief aside though. Um, my world right now in terms of education is is more with voice and swallowing disorders than it is with traditional massage and physical therapy type of of um, conditions and classes. And I work a lot with speech pathologists in terms of teaching them manual therapy for facial, for tongue, for voice, for swallowing issues, but as well as other professionals like voice coaches. And what's really fascinating is this wall that's put up between you know, the manual therapy allowed professions, the licensed professionals like you and I, and speech pathologists, et cetera, and non-licensed professionals who aren't licensed to do the work that we do. But in many of those t t sorts of fields, they're allowed to touch. They're allowed to touch for touch-based cueing. For instance, I'm just going to be hypothetical here. Somebody's having a voice issue and the voice coach might come up and say, get your chin back right? Align your neck better. So the voice has a better, um, you know, avenue to come out and they touch here and the person puts their chin back and they sing and, oh, that sounds so much better. The mechanism of action of touch-based cueing is, was traditionally seen as so different from the mechanism of action of me doing the same thing, but me holding it here for five minutes to stretch the connective tissue, right? Um, that they were, they were viewed as separate interventions. But when we really start looking at the new evidence for manual therapy and realize that a lot of it is happening here and not in the muscle or the fascia, and we take a look at what the voice coach is doing when they do touch-based cueing or drop your shoulders, put your shoulders back, um, I'm seeing a lot of overlap between the two. And I just came across upon a paper that was published a couple of years ago on touch-based cueing by some um, some people at Syracuse University, and they were talking about all the different neurological factors at play when we do touch-based cueing. And lo and behold, they touched on CTAC delay ferrets for interoception the same way that we're touching on CTAC delay ferrets for interoceptions in the manual therapy literature. And talk about an overlap, right? Um, yeah. Touch is therapeutic for a wide variety of reasons beyond what we think we're doing to the tissues. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you've moved on to speech pathology and uh, the region of the neck in general and working with our ability to express as we're talking about just kind of the whole human in their issues. Because I feel like a lot of times things can happen that take away people's ability to kind of exert themselves in a situation. And I feel like our speech is just so central to our ability to, uh, I mean, just uh, really establish who we are and maintain boundaries. Do you find that as you do this work that some things may come up that have to do with people really stand, standing in their power as well? Absolutely. I, I, I think that's a really, uh, really, it was really well put the way you said that. Um, the, the understanding of, okay, um, I'm, I'll diverge for a second. The concept of emotions in terms of the trauma that we've been through, right? Um, I'm, I'm guessing through your training, whether in school and beyond, you've learned about emotional storing of the muscles, you know, muscle memory, tissue memory, all that stuff. And, you know, I certainly was in a lot of different the interventions that I learned that, you know, emotions are stored in fascia. That's what I learned in MFR. Until we come along and release the fascia, the emotions are never really dealt with. You know, that's really a pretty crappy story. But yet I believed it. And a lot of people believe that, the historical narrative of their their, their modality. Um, let's face it, when we touch people, there's often an emotion, a feeling, a sensation, a memory 
a connection past to present um, that it's easy for us to sort of take hold of that and see, see it's because it was stored in your muscle, right? Um, and I think touch can be so rich and useful as long as it's applied appropriately and ethically, but it also can be really scary because it brings up that stuff. Um, again, the more research I've done over the last couple of years, it's sort of explained a lot of the questions from my past. I came upon a paper that was published last year um, by a researcher by the last name of McParlin. And if you're interested in some of these, I can kind of drop you so, a list of some of these papers where they're taking a look at the concept of using touched um, for, yes, interoception, but also how touch can connect with a person's priors. And that, that, that word interested me, and they used it in the context of mental health, the concept of a person's priors, meaning what brought them here today based on past experiences and how touch can often basically evoke a memory from the past to the present, all right? And what I liked about that, maybe it was, it was presented in a more rational way than the MFR world presented it to me, that it wasn't because I connected with this fascial restriction, which brought you back to that specific moment in time. I brought you back to a connection to your past from the whole person experience instead of the fascial experience. And we definitely see that on our table, in our chair, however we work with somebody, where people begin to feel, right? And sometimes it's just feel something without it being able to put into words. Sometimes it's a literal connection to that past event. And, you know, is there danger in me telling you the reason you felt that is because that emotion is stored in your fascia? There's no danger. It's not very accurate. Um, it's probably not very honest. Um, but yet if it's helpful for the person, you know, so be it. But if you're looking for maybe maybe a more involved and broader explanation for those work, look into the behavioral sciences. There's so much to be learned there. Once we move beyond that strict, narrow, blinder-filled world of our own narrow modality, you know, field of vision, if you will. Yeah. I don't know if I strayed too far from your question there, but uh, apologies if I, I did. That, no, that, that, that constellation of thoughts is very relevant. You know, my idea of this uh, trauma is being stored in the body is a little bit more amorphous than that. And that I feel like the things that happen to us, we we hold on to in a sense more in our mind. So we're always reconstituting these energetic patterns which get expressed through the body, whether or not they're expressed through the fascia or the muscle. Um, and they go underneath our subconscious uh, awareness. And then when we access them through touch, we're just kind of unlocking them in a sense, but I don't see them as physically inhabiting the body as much as it's the mind's interpretation of where it is in the body. Um, and one of the things that actually brought me into um, the world of massage therapy was Peter Levine's work. I don't know if you're familiar, but his methodology of somatic experiencing, which is a touch-based therapy that helps process traumatic emotions by uh, kind of bringing them to the surface and like coaxing them back and forth through the access of touch. And I just find that work to be incredibly interesting in the idea of how our minds perceive the world. You know, that's for me, one of the most interesting things is through something like massage therapy or manual therapy, we're really fundamentally addressing the way that perceptions arise, which kind of goes off into a little bit more of a philosophical kind of tangent. But, you know, I really think that there's an opportunity to change the fundamental way we view ourselves in relation to our environments. Yeah. 
Levine's um, work, Waking the Tiger specifically, was a part, sort of one of the one of the references that I that we used in MFR back in the day. And um, you know, there's there's a you know in in a lot of other works too. There's there's a lot of usefulness within that model. But what I found fascinating is if you actually read Levine's work, uh, Waking the Tiger, from cover to cover. There's a section in there that essentially warns us against what we might be doing. And that's basically, um, I'm gonna. I, I get called on a lot when I use certain phrases, and I want to. I want to phrase this very carefully. But um, the essence of an untrained professional um, re-traumatizing somebody by bringing it up because we think it's important to bring up. And if you actually read, and I'm not saying to you in specific, but folks out there who might have read Levine's work and use the concepts in their myofascial release or craniosacral therapy or any kind of trauma-informed work, I just, you know, exercise caution that you know, this is important information. It's often really helpful information, but we need to realize that we need to stay in our own lane. Um, I'm a physical therapist, not a mental health therapist, right? And yeah, maybe the vast majority of the time, this emotion-based, trauma-based work, people find really cathartic and helpful on our table, but there's also risk and it's not necessarily, you know, it's, it's, it's deep risk. And I just, I warn people to just, to tread lightly there. And um, sometimes a little information is too much information. We need more information. And with that comes often further training and licensure to be able to do that legally and ethically. Yeah, no, I totally agree. You know, it, it interested me and inspired me, but I, yeah. I definitely keep that more to myself just because as soon as you start that conversation, again, you're creating a lot of ideas for people. Yeah. And if you're not actually trained and can walk them through the full process, yeah. uh, that's something that I'm, I'm very keen to this idea of re-traumatization and, yeah. Um, especially since the conversation on trauma has spread so much in the past couple of years yeah. you know, through social media, a lot of people are like self-diagnosing themselves as having trauma and, you know, it's something very pertinent. I think a lot of people are waking up to that fact, but, um, yeah, yeah. definitely finding a licensed professional to work yeah. with is yeah. the way to go. You know, I just had an email this morning from somebody who had taken one of my workshops, a speech therapist over in the UK. And she, you know, she's like, hey, I've got these people that I'm having some str a struggle with, you know, can you help me through this a little bit? And I'm always, I, I love working through problems. And even though I can't, you know, it's tough to treat somebody virtually, right? It's still fun to kind of give somebody ideas. And, you know, we do a lot of work in this area. And let's face it, people have trauma in this area and other areas of the body. And it was literally, um, this, pa this clinician had a patient who was strangled, right? Um, how how do we perform manual therapy on somebody who's got all this trauma, all this past stuff going on? And to me, one of the greatest ways to do that is to give the patient that the locus of control, the sense that they have control in the setting. And um, one of my favorite ways to do that is to allow them to be a complete part of the experience. So if I, for instance, want to work this area, what I'll do is I'll invite them to put their hands up here first, to put their hands on their neck and I work over their neck because what that does so often is it gives them one, first of all, we have a lot more conversation before we actually do this, right? What the goal is, um, the, the, the word no means no, I'll stop and be, all those things that we should be following. But the sense that in order to do manual therapy, we need to be directly on the skin with no, no clothing, no you know other things, I think are, are myths that you and I were taught because when I work with somebody, I can work through their clothing, I can work through their hands. And by allowing my patient to put their hands here, they can resist me. 
they can maybe not resist fully, but see what feels safe to them. So they're experiencing at the same time, and they're acting as a buffer between me and them, between me and their emotion and their trauma. And I just have found that so helpful, not just in this area of the body, but anywhere in the body, right? Because what happens is very frequently, you know, they start very rigidly and you can feel they're resisting you. And maybe it's, well, I don't know if this is going to hurt, physically hurt, right? Or I don't know if this is going to traumatize me. But then often what you'll feel is when they feel that you're not forcing, that you're patient, it's safe. Often you'll feel they slowly sort of relax and then they become a part of it. And not only a part of it, but then they become exploring an explorer as well. Instead of you doing all the work, they become involved with it. And to me, that's sheer decision making. And it also puts up a really nice boundary. So we're not infringing and and, and risking re-traumatizing. Wow. I love that. That sounds like such a productive way to work with something like that. Yeah. You're really equipping them with uh, the opportunity to like the tools to explore themselves, even if they never see you again. Exactly. You know, it's, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Very um, comprehensive. Um, so not to shift topics too much, because I think this is interesting. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of people who are listening to this who might be experiencing pain, uh, whether emotional, physical, whatever it is, are there anything? Are there is there anything that you can suggest for people who are listening to this who can't maybe access you where you are um, that they can do to kind of help uh, maybe control some of the variables that are exacerbating their pain? Is mm-hmm. there something that we can do in our day to day life that doesn't require manual therapy that might actually have an influence? Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'll, I'll, so I'm gonna answer this the question by kind of going against what you just said, because in terms of behavioral modifications, I don't tend to go there, at least with somebody, without actually having to be and evaluate them, right? Um, About environmental changes, that sort of thing. But um, I I love to teach touch as a potential way to modulate um, issues, to modulate pain. Um, And people always wanna know, what should I do? And, you know, one of the first things we do is we simply touch, you and I touch, right? We touch our patients on a regular basis. And by what I just described with this hand over hand type of thing, that's a beautiful way to get somebody involved immediately in their self-care. And not just their self-care from a maintenance perspective, but from the self-care of not creating dependency where you can do this. You don't need me, right? Um, what happens when you touch the area of pain, for instance? And if we're working in a more general way right now, the way you just described that scenario, what happens if you put your hands in on an area, in an area, what do you feel when you touch yourself there? Did your touch connect you at all with your pain experience? Now, that was a vague um, question right there. Did it connect you with? I use the concept of a continuum of relevance. When I touch somebody, I want my touch to enter in that continuum, whether it's bringing the problem, whether it's pain or anything else, a swallowing issue or whatever, whether it's bringing that problem to their awareness, like, oh yeah, that's kind of it right there. You just replicated it. Or we can also touch in a way that calms or soothes or diminishes the negative quality, right? I don't really care which end of the spectrum, the continuum that I'm on, I just wanna be on that continuum. So when you touch yourself, does it feel like you're touching yourself in a meaningful way? And if so, what do you need to do from there? Because some people, you know this by working three years in the field, some people, they like an aggressive touch. They like a pokey touch. They wanna be in there 
you know, noodling stuff. They want to be in there breaking things up. Other people, that feels threatening and harmful to them, right? Why do some people seek out a deep tissue therapist and other people, you know, they they work with craniosacral therapists for relaxation massage? Um, Because I think it's meeting their narrative, their values and expectations, which is part of the evidence-based model right there, meeting a person's values and expectations. So when I have you touch yourself, We want to do it in a way that you feel is helpful and safe instead of me telling you what's best for you. Can you then find a way to to move or not move? For instance, MFR, the way I learned it, is all about dry static stretching, engagement. We we thought we were releasing the fascia, but it's basically you're, you're engaging the person in a very slow, purposeful type of dry engagement without moving. But yet massage works really well, too, and it's movement. It's wet work sometimes, right? Which of those or a bunch of others, which feels useful to you, the consumer, the person dealing with an issue, right? Experiment with pressures. What feels helpful? Um, You're looking for something that meets your ideals and norms and values instead of it having to conform to what I think is best for you. It's a hard thing to teach somebody, especially not just virtually, but, you know, you know, theoretically, which is what we're doing, sort of the, the third ring of the, of the circle here, somebody with a hypothetical issue. But if we're going to use touch, can we then say, OK, can you see, figure out if some form of touch at all feels useful? Because let's be blunt here. There's people who don't like touch. There's people who never need to be touched to improve. Look, I look at physical therapy, the people who've been to a physical therapist and they never touch them. They do exercise under the guise of you need to be stronger. Then that person gets better. Is it because their problem was unique and it was amenable only to an exercise-based model? Or was that person, that personality more of the type that the exercise model made sense to them? That person won't come to see you and you and I. Chances are we're going to see somebody whose personal narrative is one that I need to be touched and I need to be touched in the right way to help this pain. So let's look at that part of the equation too. If somebody is looking for help, does movement help? And if movement helps, then then move. Some of us stay still out of the fear of damage, or sometimes movement hurts, so we avoid movement. Right? This is this is this is messy stuff to unpack. All right. And when we're in our own little world, our own little like, you know, singular silo, we see everybody as amenable to our problem because the way that we're not problem, but our solutions, because we see our solutions as the be all end all. In fact, they're just the way we've been we've been trained. And that's the way those are the that's the lens we see the world from. Yeah, it's such a radical perspective to take in the world of anything health related because it, most people consider it to be such an objective thing. Mm-hmm. They, there's always something that's right and there's something that's wrong. There's something yeah. that works for everybody. But like this makes me feel a little groundless in that whole uh, approach because yeah. it, it really is so much up to the individual on what's going to actually yeah. help them. It's just so and, radical and it feels yeah. yeah. What you just described was my world in 2016 or 2006 when sort of, you know, the sand started to sort of give way underneath me and I felt like there was no solid ground under me when I stopped believing everything fashionable and started looking at other worlds. And I realized that literally nobody's got all the answers, but we all have answers that are part of this larger puzzle. And 
I think the one thing that I teach when I teach this work and I practice when I practice this work here in my office is the concept of uncertainty. Can you be comfortable with not knowing? Um, and we have to know something or people think that we're total idiots and why am I paying this guy money if he doesn't know? But I'm really comfortable when somebody comes in to see me and they, you know, we do the interview, they tell their story, we do our evaluation and they say, well, what do you think's wrong with me, Walt? And I'm really comfortable saying, you know what, I'm not quite certain. And, but what I tend to do at that point is I'll, I, I will mirror back the narrative, the story that you felt was important enough to tell me, meaning the story you came in with could have been one that your doctor gave you, that you've got trigger points all through this area that nobody's been able to get rid of. So what I'll do, I'll say, you know what, I'm not certain, but what I'll do is I'll validate your beliefs, which is it could be the trigger points that your physician told you about, or it could be, and here's where I tend to insert a more neurologically inclined or behavioral inclined narrative, staying within my lane, so to speak. And I'll say, and I'll say something along the lines of, it could be something like a neurologic remnant from that injury that your body, your central nervous system just hasn't figured it a way to move on from yet. And whether it's a trigger point or whether it's a neurologic remnant, can we now figure out ways to help you? And some people get really frustrated by my lack of clarity, my lack of knowledge, my lack of certainty. But I think a lot more people look at me and say, you know, that kind of makes sense because a lot of people have said a lot of different things about this problem. And, you know, what they all sound really smart, and but none of them have been able to help me, me and they'll say. And one of my favorite lines is, I might be able to help you, but I might never know what was wrong with you. And that's another thing that brings... I think that brings us down to that level of humility, the level of equality and shared decision making. All right. And I, I just, but, and maybe that matches my life as a human being is, you know what? I don't know everything. Um, I'm, I'm always learning more. And the more I learn, the less of which I'm certain of. I love that. Can I borrow that? Can I start yeah. using that? Because yeah. yeah, yeah, that idea. I borrowed like, it from like, someone else too. So feel free. It's, it's sort of that. You know, the the more I learn, the less I know. Yeah. Yeah. Just that idea that I might be able to help you, but I might never know is, you know, like it's such a seductive thing to be the one who knows. Yeah. And I think that that's something a lot of therapists find is especially they invest so much into these things. And it's kind of like your cher cherished possession, you know, when somebody's asking for it and it's like this very simple thing. Yes. Yeah, so I finally have a semblance of ground in life and, yeah, yeah, it's just such a vulnerable place to be with people, which also models the vulnerability yeah. that they can embody, which will potentially help them. You know, it's really embodying what it is that you're doing through touch, which yeah. is just such a remarkable yeah. aspect. You know, I've been immersed in this world of continuing education for massage therapists, physical therapists, speech pathologists now for, for a long time. And, you know, I, I just see myself like kind of on an opposite trajectory is so much of the training that you and I get and that. And that's where, you know, they're teaching you to learn more and more, to become more of the expert, which it's true to a certain extent, but there's also that, that false empowerment. And I'm trying to take people away from, sure, all of those tools, all of those recipes, all of that knowledge you learn can be helpful, but temper it somewhat, right? Temper it with the values and expectations and the lived experience of the end of one. Every time somebody walks in our door, it's somebody unique. It's not another fascial problem walking in your door. It's something from which we can take all of that past experience and training and, you know what, apply it through the lens of uncertainty with this, with this unique individual.
Wow. Yeah, I've always, maybe not always, but I've definitely thought lately that like modalities are really just channels for our intention to do well. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's kind of an empty thing and it just allows you to have a container to just bring yourself forward and yeah. to bring your attention and to bring your uh, desire to help, which is the thing that helps more than applying a specific technique. Yeah, yeah. Really. But yet we still use those techniques. I mean, I still do with my hands what I learned in 1992 in my first MFR class. I still do it. It's just what's happening up here has changed. And how my communication occurs with my patient has changed remarkably, right? I, I learned so much from a hands-on aspect, from mafash release, from craniosacral, from zero balancing, from physical therapy, from all those things. It's like to, to learn how to critically think, I had to continue to move on and learn more. And I still do all those things with my hands. I just apply them in a very different way than I once did. Mm, that's wonderful. Well, we are uh, kind of near that yep. time. So I want to say thank you uh, so much yeah. for sharing your insight into this world. Uh, it was very clarifying for me. Um, it's uh, great to be able to sit down with somebody who's been so invested in the world of manual therapy for as long as you have. And I think it's uh, really important that you're out there and you're saying what you're saying and really standing firm in that. There's a lot of forces that would probably prefer it if you stopped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I want to thank you too for, you know, it's a very insightful talk with you today. I really appreciate both meeting you live as well as the conversation we had. Yeah, of yeah. course. So uh, in terms of your virtual offerings, I know you offer some CEs and stuff. If a yeah. practitioner is listening and wants to absorb more of this in a more uh, linear, structured way, um, yeah. where can they find you? Um, waltfritz.com is the easy, well, that's the way, waltfritz.com. Um, I, I have a couple of free classes um, that I put together. One is a class on shared decision make, shared decision, uh, let me, I can't even say the words right now, <laughs> shared decision making. There, I start over. Um, and it's basically an hour long talk. If you go to my website and go to the menu, and there's a tab, uh, one of the drop down menus, there's a deeper dive. Deeper dives are these short courses that I teach. Some of them are, are um, pay and a number of them are free. Um, but the, the shared decision-making one is I offer for free. It's basically, I recorded it for a massage therapy conference, conference and then I just bundled it in my own package. If you want to know more about that, how what does it mean from a philosophical perspective? Plus, what are the some of the nuts and bolts on how you can apply it? You know, you can you can you know pick up some information there. I have I have online offerings. I have live offerings. They're all there. I have podcasts and articles and videos and all the good stuff that you know and most of us have out there. But you know, to me, um, information is power, and sometimes that power needs to come. Um, as the altruistic concept of, you know what, we can share a lot for free and help people much like you're doing right here, right now. And I think that's really a valuable asset for the greater good of the communities that we serve. So uh, yeah, check out the website and I'm, I'm very approachable when it comes to emails and things like that. So if you have any questions about what we chatted about, uh, don't hesitate to give me a call. And oh, shameless plug, my book just got published last month. Manual therapy and voice and swallowing a person-centered disorder is, is sort of the embodiment of the last five years of my life and putting the transition from it's all about the tissues to it's all about the human being into print. So uh, that's out there too. Shameless plug. Thanks for that. Yeah, of course. I'll have that in the description too. Good, so thanks. awesome. Thank you so much, Walt. Great. We will catch you next time. Great. Uh, thanks care. for having me. 
All right, everybody, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. Again, that was Walt Fritz. You can head over to waltfritz.com. Check out what he has available online. Uh, if you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism and consider becoming a patron. It helps me keep the lights on. We also got YouTube where you can subscribe and hit the bell for notifications. Instagram, Facebook, like, follow. Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. There's a lot of ways to interact, and each one of them is felt and received by me, so I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for your attention, and I hope that this finds you super well. We'll see you next week.